So, hey, why don't we take a second and uh, would you look around you and see somebody you don't know and wish them a Merry Christmas? Do that. Just, just kind of <laughs> lean over and say hi and wish them a Merry Christmas. <laughs> so, uh, so how was that for you? How was that good? Like, you know, some of you are like, I have been waiting all year for this day. That Christmas season is upon us and you are like, you are Mr. and Mrs. Christmas spirit. Like you just love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. And there are others of you that are going, dear Jesus, is it already Christmas again? You gotta be kidding me. They put a Christmas tree on the stage. I cannot believe that we're lighting candles. We're already in Advent season. <laughs> and I was thinking about this this morning and I was wondering, where do I fall in that category? Like, do I, am I like over the top <laughs> or am I kind of, you know, bah humbug? And I probably lean more this way. I gotta be honest with you. I, I don't know how excited I get, but I was thinking it would be a lot of fun. I was, Chad doesn't know this, but I was thinking, wouldn't it be fun if we took this area right out here and turned it into a live nativity scene? Wouldn't it be great? Like camels and donkeys and sheep, like each of y'all could take turns playing Mary and Joseph, you know, and some of y'all could be little baby Jesus. That would be weird, but it would be awesome. I am joking. I when I lived in Fort Lauderdale, one of my friends was the youth director at First Baptist Church, and they did this huge Christmas pageant. Did any of you grow up in a church that did that? No? Okay. God bless you. And like they sold tickets to this thing. And because we were friends, he was like, hey, man, I can get you tickets under the table. <laughs> and I said, it's okay, man. I've read the book. I don't need to go to the play. I don't. We're not going to do that. But you know, one of the things that I do want to do, and I want you to help me do it, is would it be possible for us here uh, this morning as people that are the church? Now, some of you may be here because you came for Thanksgiving and you got lassoed into coming to church. I get it, all right? Uh, all of us have sat in your seat. Some of you may be cynical and not believe that you're a part of the church and you are welcome here. We love people with questions, but there's a lot in this room that call themselves the church. We don't go to church. We are the church. We're the bride of Christ. We're people that have experienced the transforming power of Christ in our lives. And we're a weird kind of oddity because we have been, what scripture talks about is, is we're no longer of the world. In other words, we have been born into a new family. And in this new family, this new family has a new way of living. It has a new way of talking. It has a new way of understanding itself. And it has a new way of understanding each other in the world that we live in. And so here's what I'd like for us to do during this Advent season that we're starting today is that we would learn how to do Advent as the new family. What do you think? Okay, not a good idea. Let's go to Sermon B, all right? So there was a baby born in a manger. <laughs> you with me? Because uh, we're gonna, what we're going to do is we're not going to go into the nativity stories. We're going to go all the way back to Isaiah, which is a book in the Old Testament. And why Isaiah? Because Isaiah is a book that has more prophecy about the coming of Jesus than any book in the Old Testament. 
In fact, Isaiah doesn't just prophesy about the coming of Jesus. Profound. Go read the book. It'll blow you away because this book was written 700 years before Jesus stepped foot on the earth. It also talks about uh, when Jesus comes back again. And that's what Advent is. See, when when we use the word Advent, if you've been around, you kind of know, but it's okay if you don't. It's from a Latin word that means waiting. So when we're talking about celebrating Advent, what we're celebrating is that we're a people waiting. So let's talk about that waiting just for a minute before we get into how does the new family do Advent. Well, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, when God created the heavens and the earth and he created Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve blew it. Maybe you don't know that story. You can go back to Genesis, you read it. But Adam and Eve sinned, and that sin then separated them from God, and God cast them out of the garden. Um, And as he cast them out of the garden, listen to the words that he said to them. He turns to Satan, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And he will bruise your head, or he will crush your head, And you shall bruise his heel. In other words, there is going to come one that is going to smash your head. The work that you've accomplished here, the curse of sin, there's going to come one that's going to crush it. And you're going to strike his heel, which means you're going to kill him. But when you kill him, he's going to crush you. It doesn't say, but what God is saying is, as I usher you out of the garden, there's a plan in place now where I'm going to come looking for you and I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to bring you home. And so waiting has always played a crucial role in the life of God's people. Let me, since I can't use this because this is here, all right? I have all the mixed emotions, you know? But let's just do this. Alex, we can stand up for me, all right? Alex is going to be my chalkboard today, all right? You guys know Alex? Hey, Alex. Okay, let's pretend he's the Garden of Eden. Glorious, bro. See, my watch just said, you are the Garden of Eden. All right. So Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve get cast out. He's coming. He's coming. And we're traveling through time. All right. We're traveling through time. Chad, stand up. So timeline. Consider this a timeline. Jesus arrives. A baby is born. The one that has been promised. Here we go. I'm going to cuddle you. All right. All right. Uh, we've already lost. I don't think we're going to be able to reel it back in. I'm sorry. Wow. Okay, brain, get together. I just flashed to It's a Wonderful Life. I don't know why. My, my mind just went there. Okay, so God promises he's coming. And so time, time, the people of the world, the people of God, his chosen people, the Israelites, they're all waiting. What are they waiting? They're waiting for him, for the one that's going to come. And so he arrives And he raises up and comes out of the manger and becomes a man without sin. And then he takes the sins of the world upon his shoulders. And he pays for our sins and he sets us free. Then he rises from the dead to newness of life so that us, the church, can rise to newness of life with him. And something that they could never even possibly imagine back here in the garden is you're not working, walking with God. God is now walking with you and his spirit now dwells within you. That's the church. Okay, so it's done. No more waiting. Oh, then this is where it gets really good. Dan, this is Chad Sr. (laughs) Do you see it? (laughs) 
Everybody in this room is turning to the significant other to them and says, we are never sitting in the front row. <laughs> Ever. It's never going to happen. <laughs> Here's the waiting for us now. Christ has paid the price. He has come and purchased the church. He has made us his own. He has called us his people. Once we were not a people and now we're his people. And now we're waiting. We're waiting for his return. We're now waiting for the second advent when he's going to come back and make all things new. Thanks, guys. Y'all can sit down. I really like thinking about Jesus as uh, Chad. So Justin's going to come up and read for us. Justin Hips, yes. Another baby Jesus. And uh, what he's about to read for us, and here's what I want you to hear, is Isaiah Right at the beginning of the book of Isaiah, remember this is 700 years before Chad is born, all right? Baby Jesus is born and comes and fulfills the prophecies that have been spoken about him. 700 years. He's talking about the second coming of Christ. So this is the second second return of Christ where Christ is establishing his kingdom on earth. Okay, so Justin, Isaiah chapter 2. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, son saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations, and we will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up swords against nation, nor will they, will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Thank you. Hey, let's pray. Lord, uh, I'm not clever enough uh, or smart enough, Lord, to do what only your Holy Spirit can do that you've gathered these people in this room. Lord, by your divine providence, we are all in this room. And Lord, we pray that this would not be a waste of time. We pray, Lord, that, uh, that this would be a moment where we pause and give consideration that maybe you have something for us right now. And that this would be a transformative moment. Lord, we, we are weary of who we often are. And we pray today you would change us, that the people that walked in here would not be the same people walking out. Meet us, Jesus. Make us more like you. Change our loves and our hearts. Heal us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So I kind of hate sharing this stage with the Christmas tree. But so look at this passage because this passage is pretty remarkable. The first thing he says is that the Lord's temple will be established and it's the highest mountain. And it's this visual image of when Christ comes again, his throne is going to sit on the highest mountain. There is no mountain higher. In other words, there is no authority. There is no power. There is no person. There is no nation. There is no kingdom. There is no weapon that is greater than Jesus. That when he comes back, he is going to be declared the greatest of all great. There is nothing outside his power. There's nothing that he can't do. What he desires, he is able to accomplish. He is in control of all things. So we see this glorious picture of the kingdom of God that's high and lifted up. And then listen to this. And it says that, come, let us go up to the mountain of the temple of the Lord. He will teach us. 
So I don't know what your image of heaven is. Maybe it's this cloud that you float on, you know? And, but right here in this passage, it's talking about the, that this new kingdom is gonna be a kingdom where we get to come curious, that we're in a constant stage of learning and gathering more information about God and about the universe and the world that we live in and about ourselves. Like This is not us appearing in heaven and now we're a finished product. We get to bring all our curiosity to the kingdom of God. We're eager to hear what he wants to teach us. Then we get to see here that he does teach us his way. And then the second thing that we see is in verse four, it says, he will judge between the nations. He will settle disputes for many people and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Maybe you've read this before, but do you see what he just said? This is the new kingdom. This is the new heaven. This is the second advent. This is the Dan, all right? Christ has come back. And what is he saying? Jesus is going to settle disputes. Wait a minute. What? Are you telling me that in the perfect world, in the world where there is no more sin, there's still going to be disputes? For those of you that believe that all conflict is sin, this should blow your mind. Like this, for you that are so afraid of conflict because you think there's nothing good that ever comes from conflict, in the new kingdom, right there, that there is going to be disagreements. There are going to be different opinions. There are going to be different ways of viewing things. But in this new kingdom, Jesus is then going to be able to bring peace. But more than that, look what it says. We're going to participate in that peace. That we're going to, we're going to now hammer our swords into useful tools to harvest um, things that are good for everyone. In other words, Jesus is going to settle the disputes, but then I'm going to become a peacemaker in the midst of conflict. Man, I wish we had all day to talk about this because can you imagine like a marriage? Well, first, can you imagine a marriage having a conflict? Those are married people laughing right there, right? Single people, I'm sorry to tell you. But marriage is marked by conflict. Why? Because you're in it. All right, you're in the marriage. And because you're in the marriage, instant conflict. Just think about this. You have a hard, when you're single, do you have a hard time living with yourself? Now you're about to ask somebody else to join that crazy circus, all right? And there's gonna be conflict. Can you imagine a marriage where conflict's goal is peace? Can you imagine where, where we are fighting not to win, because we have taken our swords and we've put them down. We're fighting to understand that we are immensely curious about one another. How could you get that opinion? What are you thinking? How are you feeling about that? Can you imagine a conflict where you literally, you're in conflict with somebody and you come over to their side and you begin to fight for them? Imagine that. Well, this kingdom picture is this glorious thing that conflict now is a chance for us to love one another, not battle one another. You know, when Jesus says, I go to heaven and it's going to be beyond what you could possibly imagine, I think that's a part of the picture. I can't imagine conflict that is so dripping in love that we look for those places where we disagree so that we can have opportunities to love one another. Well, let's keep going. Because then in verse 5, it says, uh, Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Which, Dan, Jesus is coming back so that we can walk in the light of the Lord. When did we first hear that language? 
all the way back up here to Alex, the Garden of Eden. Because what was true about Adam and Eve? They walked with the Lord. So what we're hearing is that when Christ comes back and what we are waiting for the church is he's taking us home. He's taking us back to the place where we get to walk with him and do life with him and to this place of paradise, not a place of no conflict, but a place that is marked by love. It is surrounded by love. It is dripping in love. So that's awesome. (laughs) That ain't today, right? If you're married, you know that. That ain't today. So here's the question. We come into Advent season. Jesus died on the cross. He rose again. He hasn't come back yet. This waiting season, how do we live in this? All this mess. Okay. We got 15 minutes. The way we live in it... um, I'm going to say a word, but you're going to, you're going to, it's such a familiar word to you that you're immediately going to do the Charlie Brown thing, you know, where the teacher starts to speak and it's wah, 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 wah. It means nothing to you, all right? So I want to take this word and we're going to deconstruct it and they're going to, we're going to reconstruct it, okay? You with me? If I lost you already, <laughs> get Alex back up here. Come on. Um, the word is hope that the way that we live is we live in hope. But it's not just living in hope. We, we are looking for hope. We're gathering hope. We're building hope. We're committing ourselves to hope. We're disciplined in hope. We're pouring in hope. We're collecting hope. We're speaking hope. We're listening hope. Hope becomes the currency in which we deal with one another. It's kind of like if you've ever seen any of these survival shows where they start a fire by rubbing sticks together, you know, until they get a little ember and then they put it in their, you know, their little, what do they call that? I don't know, a bird's nest. And, you know, and they start blowing on it. Have you ever seen Naked and Afraid? It is a gross show, by the way. (laughs) And they blow on it and it starts to smoke. And what do they, they don't put it down and go, well, it smoked. It smoked. No. Because they know that this is just the beginning of what we really want, which is a flame. And they don't just keep and go, we got a flame. Then they put it in a pile of sticks because they want to build a bonfire. That's what we're going to talk about today. How do we take hope? How do we recapture it for us, blow on it, and let it start a bonfire in our lives? That's a lot to ask for 10 minutes, isn't it? All right. Well, let's go. Because the first thing I have to tell you is not good news. Because the first thing we have to do is the reason that we don't know a lot about hope is because really we've spent our whole lives trying to get away from it. We've spent a lot of our lives not wanting to have anything to do with it. In fact, we don't really like living our lives in a place of hope. When uh, this was 1975, some of you were not even alive, all right? When my dad walked into the living room and my two brothers and I were sitting there and he goes, boys, uh, we're going on vacation. And we were like, what, what, what did you just say? Like, we never went on vacation. He goes, yep, we're going to meet your uncle and his three boys in Panama City, Florida. And we were like, you got to be kidding me. This is so exciting. <clears throat> oh, wow. Shut up, Siri. <laughs> We'd never been to the beach before. 
We'd never been on a vacation that didn't involve just going to my grandparents' house before. And so we got so stoked that we're gonna go see the ocean for the very first time. Well, in June, before we went to the beach, in June of 1975, there was a movie that came out. Uh, and <clears throat> you may not know this because you may not have been alive then, but we thought, hey guys, it's Saturday afternoon, let's all go see the movie. What are we gonna go see? I don't know, it's this movie called Jaws. We didn't get in the ocean. We, I know, it's like we had never seen the ocean before. We were convinced that if we put our toe in the ocean, a giant shark would come out of the deep and just pick us off right on the beach. So we just stayed on the beach. We had a great time. I got my first airbrush t-shirt. It was amazing. I wore that thing every day for like a year. <clears throat> but one of the things I discovered is back then we didn't have sunscreen uh, that wasn't even invented then. You know, our parents just lathered us up in baby oil and said, you'll be fine. And we were out on the beach and we got burned. Like, I mean, talking about crispy. I mean, to the point where we got in our beds at night, there would be like three grains of sand in there and we'd be screaming in agony because it felt like sandpaper. And my mom went to the store and she bought something that I'd never heard of before. Aloe vera. I said, what is this green goo? She goes, don't worry about it. Just put it on you. I fell in love with aloe vera. <clears throat> Why? Because I was hurting. And so for us to talk about hope, first we have to talk about your need for hope and how you spend so much of your time medicating yourself to never need hope. You spend so much, I do. I spend so much of my time trying to get to a place to where I don't need hope. I don't really need to wait because I've made right here and now work out just fine for me. I don't really need hope. But for us to uncover our, the power of hope, first we have to uncover our need for hope, which means we have to uncover our pain. We have to undercover how much of this world doesn't work for us and how much we need something other than this world to work for us. And I could tell you a lot of stories. We don't have a lot of time here. But for some of you, I mean, I, I grew up that when I said we went to Panama City, it was our only vacation. I remember as a kid, we grew up poor and we never really had anything. And I grew up and when I became a Christian and one of my disciples said, God promises to give you everything you need for life and godliness. I said, don't believe that. I do not believe that. And I, I've struggled my whole life because I grew up that there's never enough and that we have scarcity. And here's what's crazy is me not having enough, it messes with me because it speaks to a part of my heart that feels so much shame that says, I'm not enough. So when I don't have enough, I don't feel like I am enough. And you want to talk about a pain when you've been called into ministry and you never have enough in ministry. And the, the battle of the pain of the story of my own heart, of feeling like I'm never enough. But some of you, that's not your story. Some of you have such a tremendous fear of failure. It's not because you have a love for success. You just have a fear of failure. Because what you grew up in was a world that demanded that you succeed. Maybe your parents, the only time you got affection for them is when you brought home a good report card and you learned early on, if you exceed people's expectations, that's when you belong. That's when you're accepted and that's when you're loved. And your greatest fear, if you were to peel it back and go, my greatest fear is that I'm going to fail because if I fail, nobody's going to love me. 
Everybody's going to walk out on me. I'm not going to be enough to be worthy of belonging in my family or my friends or my community or whatever you call it. That's pain. Some of you, like we said earlier, you see conflict as dangerous. You're the person that will never say the word no. Never say the word no. Because you will never allow yourself to enter into a conflict. In fact, if people have to step on you for there not to be conflict, you'll let them do that. You have no sense of your own self. And so you sacrifice yourself constantly. Why? Because you don't want anybody to walk out the door and leave you alone. That's pain. Some of you, do you know that one in 12 men in this country are addicts? So do the math here. There's a few of you in here. One in 24 women are addicts, which means there's some of you in here too. Some of you, you are so good at covering up your addiction. You are so good, whether it's to drugs, whether it's to alcohol, whether it's pornography, whatever your addiction is that you have used to medicate yourself to where you don't have to live in the achingness of hope. Some of you don't like your children, but you would never tell anybody that. I know it's funny, but it's true. Some of you don't like your spouse and you don't know what to do with it. Some of you don't like yourself. Some of you have trauma from your childhood and you're absolutely convinced that there's not a human on this planet that you can trust. That is pain. That is the sunburn that deeply needs hope. Where's your pain? So let's talk about hope. And then um, we're going to sing a little and I'm going to let Jesus do what he wants to do with you. Okay. When we talk about hope, um, there are really two kinds of hopes. One is this world's understanding of hope. And that's why we have to deconstruct it. Because when we talk about hope in scripture, we're not talking about what the world means when it says hope. So in the world, we know that we, the future is unknown. We know that if you're sane, you know, you can't control the future. There's no way you can control your life. There's no way you can control what's going to happen next or what's going to happen this afternoon or tomorrow. And so we bring hope. And the way we bring hope is we say things like, I hope we get the house that we want. Or I hope that I succeed in my job and that, that I, or I land the job that I want. Or I hope that we get tickets to the concert, you know? Who knows? I hope that our kids will be smart and healthy and wise. I hope that maybe you're single here and you're going, I hope one day I'll meet the right person. Or I hope, fill in the blank. What is your hope? But when we use hope in that way, what we're talking about is really wishing. We wish that we get the house that we want. We wish that things are going to work out for us. We wish that our lives are going to be what we expect them to be. And there's nothing wrong with wishing. There's nothing wrong with expectations. In fact, and this is a whole other series, I think that one of the jobs of the church is to awaken you from your sleep to know what your desires are. The Lord says, I'll give you the desires of your heart, which means he is pouring desire into us and then he's meeting those desires, <clears throat> which is a whole other sermon but if you're numbing your desires, it's one of the false ways you're dealing with hope. But we're not talking about wishing. We're not talking about, I wish or I hope I win the lottery. Did anybody, by the way, win the billion dollars a few weeks ago? Nobody? We'll pause. Everybody bow your head and with every eye closed, just raise your hand if you're a billionaire right now. <laughs> Hebrews 11 gives us a whole new definition for hope for the body of Christ. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What, what the writer of Hebrews is saying there is hope is not a wish. Hope is knowing that something is going to take place and I'm anchoring my confidence in that. I know that Jesus is coming back one day and he's going to make all things new. And I am going to anchor my confidence in that he's coming back. Not I'm wishing that one day he would come back, but I absolutely know that he's coming back and I'm putting my hope there. And when hope works that way, hope becomes a powerful tool. Let me tell you three ways that hope, how we're going to hijack hope in three minutes. All right. First Peter one, three. This is Peter. He wrote the book of Peter. That's why it's called Peter. First Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Born again to what? A living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. In other words, what it's saying is you don't have a hope that's just anchored in you. You have a living hope that's anchored in Jesus. In fact, one of the ways you could say this is our hope is Jesus. Jesus is our hope. And what Peter is talking about here is the way that we live in hope is the way the Hebrews understood when we talk about the future and the past. When you go to the Hebrew language, the word that they use for future uh, doesn't mean in front of us like we Westerners would think. That when we talk about the future, we think about he has a bright future ahead of him. The Hebrews didn't talk about that. When they would talk about the, past, the future, they would always talk about it in the sense that it was behind them. And when they would talk about the past, it wasn't something that was behind them like we think about. The past was in front of them. In other words, when Hebrews talked, when a Hebrew talked about the future and the past, it's almost as if the past is in front of them and the future is behind them and they're backing into the future. I'm going to go off the stage. And <clears throat> the picture here is a Hebrew understood the way I go into the future is with my eyes on the faithfulness of God in the past. That look what Jesus has done for me. He went to the cross for me while I was yet in my sins. He died for me. And if he loved me while I was his enemy, how much more now is he going to give me all things in the future? He went to the cross for me. Then he rose again so that I could rise to newness of life. Jesus is glorious. Look what he's done. Look what he's done. Look what he's done. Look what he's done. We're backing into what he promises to do next. So the first role of hope is for me to look back and go, thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for making me your own. Now, whatever is coming my way will never change that. And you're with me no matter what happens. No matter what happens. No matter what happens to my kids, he is good. No matter what happens to my marriage, he is good. No matter what happens to my addiction, he is good. He's got me. My hope is not in the future being something that I can brag about. My hope is that Jesus was with me there and he's already waiting for me there. And he's going to come and make all things new. That takes practice, doesn't it? Needing that in our lives. Let me tell you one other way it's powerful. Hope lets me be human. In Romans chapter 8, it says, For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning, 
together in the pains of childbirth until now. Like ever since Alex, Garden of Eden, sin came into the world, all of creation is groaning. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. You hear what's happening? Is He's saying that now that I see that hope, I am free to groan. Like This life is hard. Relationships are hard. Sitting in this room can be hard. Expectations that don't meet reality, that is hard. Facing my body breaking down and getting old is hard. All of this is hard. And instead of pretending it's all okay, we're going to go to church. How you doing? Fantastic, man. I'm doing great. And we have this, this pretend community where nobody is sick, nobody is struggling, nobody has doubts. We're all just fantastic. Hope says, no, 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 none of that. Hope says, come in here and groan. Groan, bring your pain. Bring all the struggles that life gives you. Groan. So many of you know Paul Ekberg, our drummer. Yes, he's not here today because at our worship time last week, right before they came in and led worship, his retina detached from his eye. Pray for him. He had to have surgery this week. And it's the second time it's happened. And what that means is, is that he can't, gravity has to keep his retina attached to his eye. So he has to keep his head down for a week that's how he has to sleep in like a little donut. And he, he can't lift his head. He's got to do this. He can't read. He can't watch anything on a screen. Like all he can do is just sit like this. Pray for him. Let me tell you something about Paul. He is groaning. And I groan with him. I'm like, oh, brother, this happened again. Oh, I feel your pain. And here's what groaning allows to happen. And this groaning allows me to let somebody come sit on the couch with me and put their arm around me. Groaning allows me to let another person see me as a human and love me. That's what hope does. Hope allows me to groan. He's coming again, but right now it's hard. He's going to make all things new, but man, I wish that would happen today. Because this is hard. I'm in debt. My relationships don't work. I failed again at trying to quit drinking. I've done so many things that just don't work. Jesus, come. And Jesus says, hey, don't go to church and pretend to be okay. You groan. Because we're a community of hope. Right? Yes? <laughs> Some of you are like, I ain't doing that. I ain't doing that. I'm not sitting on the front row. All right? There's two things I'll never do at Midtown. Finally, and then we'll finish. Hope, hope, once it lets me be loved, hope unleashes me to love. In Romans chapter five, it gives us this perfect picture. It says, hey, rejoice in your suffering, groan. And when you rejoice in your suffering, you know what that's gonna do? Your rejoicing is gonna turn that suffering now into endurance. And that endurance is gonna be turned into character. And then listen, and it says, and then that character is going to produce hope. I'm rejoicing in my suffering. I'm groaning. I'm doing. But then when I rejoice, it's going to burst into flames. And it says, and hope will never disappoint you. Hope will never put you to shame. Why? Because hope is going to allow you to see God is pouring his love out into your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Romans chapter five, that's in the Bible. Hope now opens my eyes to see, oh, you're pouring your love inside of me. And let me tell you, that sounds great, but it is not. Let me tell you why. Because when Jesus pours his love inside of you, when you actually choose to rejoice in your suffering because you're going to groan in hope and, he, and you start to see that he's pouring his love into your heart, it is going to mess your life up because you cannot see him pouring his love into your heart and not then turn to the world that is suffering and go pour that love onto them. You can't do it. You just can't. There's a story of a woman who was captivated by hope and she was so compelled by this love that God has poured into her heart to then pour it unto the least of these that she began to search where in the world is there the most hopelessness? Can you imagine asking that question? She realized that in India, people that had HIV, people that had leprosy or people that were dying of tuberculosis were abandoned by their family and cast out on the streets to die by themselves. So she traveled to India. She opened up the house of the dying. And Mother Teresa said, those who live like animals will come in here and die like angels. Her whole mission was to experience the love of God and then to pour that love on people that had nothing to give to her. Literally, she was taking people's hands and ushering them to the other world. That was it just caring for them and loving them so that as they die, they die with dignity. And this is what she said. We think sometimes that poverty is only being hungry or naked or homeless. The poverty of being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for is the greatest of poverty. And we can start in our own homes to remedy this kind of poverty. See what I'm saying? That's why we don't want, to, that's why we don't want hope. That's why we avoid it. Like, I, I don't want to be in need. I want to be needless. I don't want to be out of control. I want to be in control. I don't want to come in here and groan. I want a life that never groans. Because hope's going to mess you up. But it's what wakes up the church. So during this Advent season, as we begin, would you consider, would you just consider to begin to blow on that? Like we're about to sing some songs. And here's how you could start. Like, where have you run away from hope in your own life? Where do you need hope? Where is the pain that is evident in your life? Would you just blow on that and say, Lord, come, bring your hope. Allow me to groan in this music that we're about to sing. And would you allow me by hope to see your love for me? Would you care to do that? Lord Jesus, we don't know if you were born on December the 25th. Probably not. But as a church, we need hope. So we use this season. We hijack this season for the work of your kingdom. And I pray for my friends here, Lord, as we come into this time of singing, as we come into this season of reclaiming the hope that is ours in you, Jesus. Would you help us fan into a flame? Let us be courageous about our groan. And let us be shameless in our need to see your love for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.